This is Mark Lieberman, the host of The World According to Mark, brought to you through WPVM LP in Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7 on your FM dial and streaming globally on WPVMFM.org. Today, we're going to continue discussing mm -hmm. with uh, important journalistic figures around the area, um, how they're covering the news, um, why it's important, why it's important for our democratic process. And I have the pleasure of having Peter Lewis, who is a reporter and probably holds a couple of other positions in Asheville Watchdog, which is a free, local, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization that delivers its information entirely on the internet, if I have that correctly. And so let me stop talking and, and, and thank Peter for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Mark. Appreciate your having me. So I have been uh, following uh, Asheville Watchdog for some time. I uh, find it uh, thoughtful, uh, well, well written, a good source of information. And uh, as you and I talked about um, before we got on the, on the air, uh, so to speak, uh, about why your particular journalistic endeavor is, is important, particularly as we see a decline in print media and a decline in local coverage. So that, that was sort of the impetus. But um, why don't you tell us again about uh, Asheville Watchdog in terms of when you came into it, um, your colleagues who write, uh, as well for it, and sort of the particular mission that you're trying to achieve. Sure. Well, Mark, as, as you and Shelley know all very well, uh, this is a great place uh, for people who are thinking about retirement. And it attracts a lot of really uh, accomplished folks to the area, and some of them just happen to be retired journalists. So when my wife and I retired to Asheville uh, just before the pandemic hit in uh, early 20. Uh, I, because I had spent my entire career in journalism, I uh, was somewhat dismayed at the state of local journalism here. Uh, and it's not because, you know, it was terrible. It was because that there simply aren't enough journalists left to cover a community of 100,000 people the way that uh, we think it, it should be covered. Uh, 25 years ago, the Asheville Citizen Times, which is the area's only daily newspaper, had a newsroom staff of about 75 people. Uh, today, it's down below 10. And, uh, you know, it, it's not their fault that they can't cover anything. They simply don't have the resources to do the kind of depth investigative journalism that we think is, is essential for a community uh, in order to have a successful democracy. People have to have information and reliable information in order to make the decisions on how they want their community to grow and, and, and to be governed. And uh, when you 
have report or stretch so thin that they have to report multiple stories a day. Uh, you know, they, they simply don't have the time to do the, the hours, days, months to do deep investigative stories the way they need to be done. Uh, we're in the process at Asheville Watchdog, for example, of, a, of what is now a four-part series on uh, how the justice system has failed homeowners, especially those who were elderly, poor, disadvantaged. Uh, you know, they're being exploited by a, a group of local investors. That's, a, that's an investigation that our reporter, Sally Keston, has been working on for more than a year. And uh, it's simply nothing that any of the local media around here can do. We are being able to do it because we're, you know, we're all retired and, uh, uh, you know, we, we can set our own timelines and, and we're not responsible to anyone for a deadline or a paycheck or anything like that. So uh, it's stuff that we think is critically important to the community. And, and fortunately, there are enough people around here in Asheville, or not enough, but there are a sufficient number of people around here that we were able to form Asheville Watchdog as a nonprofit uh, and to begin looking into the kind of stories that we thought had to be done. So let me pick up on that. Um, yes, we know that... Um that just taking a citizen time as an example, I keep forgetting whether that's citizen time or citizen times, uh, um, the, uh, the fact that they lost a lot of reporters is also coupled with the fact that their local coverage has thinned out to maybe several pages. It's part of the Gannett uh, empire, um, if you wanna call it that, USA Today. So there's a lot of other uh, regional or national or in some cases, international news in there. And, and that's not a reflection presumably on the fact that uh, local news isn't important or that people don't care about it. Um, everything that's happening is presumably a reflection of one major thing, which is Newspapers never made a ton of money, I would suspect. But in, the, in, in days past, when everybody had daily, if not weekend delivery, and retailers were advertising their wares and you know everything, grocery stores and retail stores and so on and so forth, there was a ton of money or a fair amount of money coming in. And that's the money that was used to pay journalists to pay reporters and because of that pocket of money or trough of money I guess then reporters there would be more reporters and reporters could spend more time on stories that's not there anymore for probably a hundred reasons and half of which you you probably know and I would be guessing at but it's not there because people don't like to read newspapers as much as they used to because they can get st stuff on the internet or people don't care about the news as much anymore because they're looking at other things that are interesting. We've had this concept thrown around even before Trump, but now since Trump of fake news, so people don't necessarily trust what they, what they see. And 
and and with that all happening, um, being in a traditional print newspaper business is probably going to be a relic of the past sometime soon. And that's where Asheville Watchdog comes in. But again, the only way you're able to make it is because most of the people, if not all the people that write for Asheville Watchdog don't draw a paycheck, which considerably reduces the expense of having to put out news stories. So any part of that that you disagree with or agree with or want to expand upon would be um, Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Mark. Let me, let me uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's true. We don't uh, draw paychecks at, at Asheville Watchdog, but we plan to, uh, not us, not the original volunteers, but we also recognize that uh, certain age, we're not going to be able to keep this up uh, indefinitely. So if we're going to try to build a, a long lasting foundation for local journalism here in Asheville, we need to bring in younger reporters and, and it's unlikely they're going to work for free. So uh, one of the things we're doing right now is, is trying to build a business model that, um, you know, will allow us to hire uh, reporters to work full time and, and carry on. Uh, and that, let me double back to something you said about newspapers not being profitable. Uh, newspapers are profitable. Uh, they've always been profitable, uh, at least a lot of the larger ones. In fact, Gannett is profitable. They maintain a 20% profit margin, uh, which is enviable uh, among a lot of industries, but they maintain that profit margin by cutting costs. And uh, for example, in the case of the Asheville Citizen Times, uh, one of the first things that Gannett did, uh, which Gannett, by the way, is owned by a hedge fund. Hedge funds are, uh, uh, they're dedicated to the principle of making money and uh, not journalism, which was the original purpose of uh, the Gannett Corporation. So you have a hedge fund owner uh, who acquires this property and in order to maintain the kind of returns that, that they need to get, uh, they have to cut expenses. And the two largest expenses for a newspaper are people and paper. And so initially they, they started out by selling the real estate, the uh, Asheville Times, Citizen Times building they sold. And now they, they leased back a portion of that building for their uh, smaller news operation. They sold the printing plant. So the Asheville paper is now printed in South Carolina. They uh, distributed the, uh, they reduced the workforce you know, from 75 down to a handful. Uh, the editor of the Asheville Citizen Times now lives in Cincinnati. Uh, you know, so each step along the way as, as the company maintains its profits by cutting expenses, it means that there are less resources here in Asheville. Uh, and we support the, Asheville Citizen Times. That's what the watchdog mm. does. Uh, our, one of the difficulties we've had in the early going here is trying to persuade the other media here in town that we're not competing against them. We're, we're trying to become a resource doing the kinds of stories that they can't do because of various restrictions. Uh, and we give our reporting to them for free. So earlier you said, you know, we, 
we distribute our news on our website, uh, we do that. But we also give our stories to anybody who wants them, whether it's uh, the local public radio station, uh, whether it's the Mountain Express, which is a weekly, or whether it's the Citizen Times, or uh, any of the local publications around here are free to carry our stuff. Uh, the Urban News, which is a, a newspaper serving the Black community here in Asheville, carries our stuff. Um, and that's, that's the way we want it to be. You know, we, we believe that the journalism is what's important. Uh, we will figure out how to support that journalism through our nonprofit organization. Um, the others, the for-profit people like the Citizen Times and Mountain Express and others will have to figure out their own model. And again, doubling back to what you said, yeah, it's, it's harder for them now because local advertising money goes to Google and Facebook rather than to the local publications. And, uh, and so they have to figure out how to make up that lost revenue and digital advertising simply isn't doing it. Uh, I've spent last 10 or 15 years of my career trying to figure out business models for sustainable journalism. I, I uh, uh, had a fellowship at Stanford University where uh, I spent a couple of years looking into business models and I'm convinced that the nonprofit model uh, is the one that's going to be the most sustainable uh, for a local community. And so that's why we organized the watchdog in that way. So I hear you bringing up two important points that um, my question provoked in effect. One is nonprofit doesn't mean that people don't get paid who do the work. Right. Not nonprofit means that there's not a dividend or distribution to owners based merely on the fact that they've invested in it. So um, not paying people um, is a short term um, bridge, so to speak, as you say, if you're going to attract younger journalists who who have not yet retired and are looking forward to eventual retirement is going to require money. Um, I also take your point that it's not that uh, companies that own news organizations can't be profitable, but they're profitable, as, as you've indicated, in, in part because they're dedicated to reducing costs as much as possible. But you can only reduce costs so much because then you just have to start working on the revenue side. And I'm certainly uh, going to defer to you with your fellowship at Stanford for the business model, but somehow you got to take in money. And um, unlike some magazines that I still subscribe to, actual print magazines like <laughs> The New Yorker that you know now are like $8 or $9 or whatever in that range, um, and, and so they've up there, you know, I remember when it was a buck and a half, um, and I'm dating myself, but newspapers haven't driven up the cost of the subscription very much, it doesn't appear to me. So if revenue declines from advertising sources, and the subscription prices don't go up high enough to, to handle their cost structure, it still suggests to me that the journalism part of what Gannett does as a hedge fund owner is not driving in a ton of revenue. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that. Well, again, I don't want to disparage our, our partners at the Asheville Citizen Times, but when you think about it, uh, you know, I'm a resident of Asheville. If I subscribe to the local paper, 
Um, I would like to think that the money that I'm paying for my subscription goes to make the local news better. And in fact, the, the money that I send to the Asheville Citizen Times for a subscription doesn't add reporters. It doesn't make the paper fatter. It doesn't expand the coverage area. Uh, it simply goes to corporate headquarters out of state. And who make the decisions then from Cincinnati on what the people in Asheville uh, you know, will be reading about. And so that's difficult. Um, if I can pivot just a little bit, we are nonprofit, but we still have to operate as a sustainable business. Yes. That, uh, you know, we do have expenses and we have to meet those expenses. Uh, as a matter of fact, our, our largest expense uh, is uh, media liability insurance. Because of the, the types of stories that we do, holding the powerful to account and, and uh, stepping on tails and, and you know, uh, afflicting the comfortable uh, and comforting the afflicted, that sort of thing. Uh, insurance is our biggest expense and it's expensive. Uh, and also we, because we have a, a website, you know, we have to pay a web developer to put that and a host and, and other things. So we have substantial expenses. Uh, we don't have a payroll. Uh, we hope to, uh, but we also are working really hard to figure out how we're going to raise enough money in the community uh, to support the watchdog. We know that what we do is valuable. Uh, what we don't know is whether the people value it enough to support it. And that's, that's a grand experiment. Okay. Uh, those of you just tuning in, that is Peter Lewis, my guest, who's a reporter and um, I guess founder or one of the founders. Um, maybe, maybe you don't call yourself a founder by the, by the time you came in, things were already set up of the uh, Asheville I, Watchdog. I was an early volunteer, but uh, yeah. there was a, a core group of founders uh, okay. that I was not a part of. You're the, you're, you're the, the secondary coming, so to speak. That's right. <laughs> okay. I showed um, up on their doorstep. <laughs> um, again, I do want you to talk a little bit, um, and don't be too modest about your background, but I want to ask you a, a question based upon what you said previously, which is, how you know you're, de you're dependent right now on uh, donations as a 501c3 company and people can get on the Asheville watchdog uh, website as as I did and make a contribution and that every little bit helps um, but I'm curious when you make the point that you're not competing with the other uh, newspapers or the other print media in particular so you give, you give stories to them for republication. So what that does uh, in the, immediately is gets, gets you a wider audience. So you don't have to just go to your website to find a story that was written by a journalist from Asheville Watchdog. You can read about it and attribution is given um, to the writer uh, in, that, in that newspaper. I'm, I'm curious, since again, at some point, you got to start making, you know, getting more money in. What is your motivation besides 
altruism and wanting to get the word out to giving those stories away for free? Shouldn't there be some kind of quid pro quo there? I know that that might taint the ethics of what you're doing, but but why 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 shouldn't these these companies or these other uh, newspapers or whatever why shouldn't they have to pay something for the journalism that you guys do? We want to make the journalism as widely available as possible, and frankly, most publications. Uh, can't afford it. Uh, you know, the you look at how tight the budgets are at, at other local publications. They don't have enough reporters to, you know, they can't do that. Uh, and they have to pay their reporters. And uh, you know, it's just a. We think altruism is a good reason for doing what we're doing. Um, all of us at the Watchdog are retired professional journalists. We've We've had good careers, uh, you know, in my case, uh, I'm coming up on 50 years as a professional journalist. It's just sort of uh, in my blood and I would hate to see it die out. I have seen towns where news has died out and, uh, you know, there, there is a possibility uh, that Asheville one of these days could wake up without a daily newspaper, without reporters who were covering city hall and school boards and, and local government. And I don't want to see that happen. And none of the people at the watchdog want to see that happen. So uh, we don't want to uh, put additional burdens on the existing media ecosystem by charging them for stuff that we think the, the public uh, ought to be supporting. Okay. If the public wants this kind of journalism, we're, we're hoping that they will step forward and support it. But it is, uh, again, and not to belabor it, it is sort of a different kind of mentality slash mindset. I mean, I'm used to seeing, um, you know, various movies, of course, you know, about journalists scooping and one newspaper wants to scoop the other and they're all in a big uh, hurry to get the paper out first and so on and so forth. And so that's highly, highly competitive. And, um, and there were reasons for doing it and benefits associated with who got it, who got it out there first. Uh, I think a lot of the cable news networks still behave that way, CNN versus MSNBC. And I'm not gonna dignify calling Fox a, a true news uh authority but you see all that and then you wonder well okay your attitude and the attitude of Asheville watchdog is we're all sort of in this together um there's a codependency and a recognition that um that it, if ever, all rising tides lift all boats i guess to use another metaphor it's if you could, if you can be successful, everybody can be successful. It's not, you know, a, a, a binary determination. I'm using way too many metaphors here. Go ahead. <laughs> there, there are different, you know, the, the journalism is a very wide field and it spans everything from, you know, uh, OANN and Fox and others on one side to, uh, you know, far left publications on the other. Uh, and 
the experience of the reporters varies from uh, Pulitzer Prize winners and, and other accomplished folks all the way down to people who write the horoscope columns and things. So, you know, it's, it's hard to generalize on that stuff. Uh, we have chosen a very specific niche uh, for the watchdog, and that is uh, to do in-depth uh, reporting on complex issues that the other publications can't do. God bless them for doing daily stories. We don't do this. You know, we don't do breaking news. We don't, you know, we don't chase sports scores. We don't run uh, diet and celebrity news. You know, we, we simply look at complex issues that, that have to be told, you know, if, you know, if you're going to figure out how the, how the city budget goes, you know, if you're going to look at reparations, if you're going to look at, uh, you know, housing development and racial equity, uh, uh, topics like that, uh, that's, those aren't stories that you can pound out on a daily basis. And, and if, if uh, the local Fox station wants to tackle those things, then, you know, we'll help them, you know, we'll, we'll do what we can, but uh, they're not doing it. And so that's why we're doing it. And we, we plan to keep doing it as long as we can. So does the, the rubric or name in investigative reporting, is that, is that how you would, again, Watchdog seems to suggest that you're doing investigative reporting, but then the question of what does investigative reporting means? It clearly mean, doesn't mean what you suggest is you're not covering the daily sessions of the Asheville City Council or Buncombe County Commissioners or whatever, but you may cover a particular meeting or a particular resolution if there's a story there behind the routine aspects of simply meeting and getting together and, and having an agenda. Yeah, here's an example. So, so last year, the Asheville City Council voted unanimously uh, to support uh, restitution, res uh, you know, to reparations, reparations. To, uh, to try to address historic discrimination against Blacks and, and, uh, here in Asheville and, and in Buncombe County. That's a story that the Asheville Citizen Times would report, you know, that that they went ahead and did that. Uh, what we do is say it's a year later and diddly squat has happened. You know, like we go in and figure out why nothing has happened in the year since they did that and what the problems are and dig deeply into the community and figure out where it went wrong uh, and what can be done to fix it. You know, so that's, that's where our strength comes from. And uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but we have a, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter in Sally Keston. Uh, and what she does is uh, at a different level than, than what I do, for example, as a, as a reporter for the watchdog, uh, doing in-depth stories like the, an investigation of, of Mission Hospital sale to Hospital Corporation of America, for example. Uh, it's, a, it's a fine line, but we just say we do in-depth reporting, uh, which would be like on reparations or on Mission Hospital, and then investigative reporting where Sally actually goes into the, the 
courthouses and tracks down people in Knoxville or, uh, you know, investigative records and, and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a mix, but in general, it's the kind of complex stories that, that we do as a watchdog to make sure that the people of our community are getting the information that they need to have to make the right decisions. Well, in the past, I've interviewed uh, a reporter who's no longer with um, Citizen Times um, on journalism that she was doing, investigative reporting, having to do with you know a the, the scandal uh, of the former uh, county manager for Buncombe County, and you know what one of the things that uh, was very difficult for her, and I suppose it's still difficult. Um, for every reporter that does any kind of investigative reporting is she couldn't get information from, you know, governmental sources. You know, she'd have to go through something resembling a Freedom of Information Act, but it's called something different at the state level. And she, you know, she found out that uh, well, her experience was it could be weeks, months, and maybe forever, and she wouldn't get, she wouldn't get anything. She wouldn't get any kind of accountability that's only one way to get information. The other way to get information is, you know, to, as you indicated, knock on doors, talk to people who are willing to talk. But, but there's a, a lot of things, like you mentioned mission, mission, and I want you to talk about the mission thing a bit, but there's a bunch of things that were covered by non-disclosure agreements, and we're not talking about it now, and, you know, it, it's not for public purview. How, how is that um, how has that made the, the job of you and other journalists for Asheville Watchdog much more difficult? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively new to the area. I've only been here two years. And when I got here, I was struck by uh, an attitude, I guess, uh, among various institutions here that didn't take transparency seriously. Uh, I think what happens when you lose local journalism or when it's diminished as it, as it has been in Asheville is that uh, the people in power uh, begin to get comfortable with keeping secrets. And they don't have people who are demanding answers from them, which is the traditional role of a, of a watchdog journalist. And I found that in Asheville, a truly surprising level of uh, obscurity, deliberate lack of information. Uh, and it, it hit me right from the start. The first story I did here was on Mission Hospital sale to HCA, uh, which I'd be happy to go into in, in more depth. But that is one of the problems when you lose local journalism, is that people become comfortable not knowing things. And uh, it makes it easier for corruption to arise. And so there are, there are other investigative reporters, and the Citizen Times did a wonderful job in, in looking at, at corruption in, in a number of cases, but they simply can't, <laughs> there's more corruption than there are reporters. And, uh, 
you know, so it's it's something that we think has to be strengthened. Uh, if you're going to break that culture of silence. And if you'd like, I, you know, I can talk about the... Well, let's talk about mission if you want to use that as an example or sure. if you had another one in mind. But, um, you know, setting the stage is that we know, what was it, two years ago that uh, Hospital Corporation of America, uh, in effect, bought mission or is that my... Yeah, just some, just some background. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about nonprofits and, and for-profits and the differences and uh, the mission health system mission hospital uh, for 133 years was a nonprofit hospital here uh, the largest and, and dominant hospital for western north carolina uh, that doesn't mean it was unprofitable it was you know uh, you, a nonprofit has to make money and and mission was really good at that the difference is that the money that's left over after you pay all the expenses goes back into the community. It goes back to supporting the local hospital um, and as opposed to a profit hospital where that money is then siphoned out of the system and distributed to shareholders who may live thousands of miles away. Uh, and so it, it doesn't go to the benefit of the community. Uh, under North Carolina law, when a nonprofit is sold to a for-profit company, the attorney general is required to make sure that the investment that the community has put into its local nonprofit in terms of millions and millions of dollars of tax breaks, all of the people who volunteer at, at the hospital, you know, there, there are so many things where the community invests in the hospital. And the attorney general is responsible for making sure that the people get that investment protected when it when the hospital sells to a for-profit. In this case, uh, out of the blue, without any warning to the, the mayor, to local officials, to uh, you know, any of the doctors or, or nurses at the hospital, uh, mission announced that uh, it had sold itself to Hospital Corporation of America, which was the largest uh, for-profit hospital chain in the country. Uh, and this happened, uh, I, I didn't realize that. Uh, I made a decision with my wife to move to Asheville on the basis of the, of the sterling reputation of Mission Hospital over the years. It was considered one of the, the, the very best hospital systems in the country. And, uh, as retired folks, that was a significant factor in our decision to move here. So when we landed here and I discovered that the hospital had been sold to HCA, it, it, I was gobsmacked. Um, I, I spent most of my career as a reporter and editor at the New York Times, and, and we had reported on HCA, uh, you know, and its history of, of fraud uh, or settling cases of uh, being accused of fraud without admitting wrongdoing, I guess is one way to put it, but they did pay the largest fines in the history of the country uh, for uh, various accusations against them and uh, had a, a reputation uh, for tight-fisted financial management often to the expense of, of quality of care. So for Mission to have sold to them uh, raised a number of questions like why the heck did, did they have to sell? 
mission at the time was more profitable than it had ever been. Uh, and again, those profits are reinvested in the community as opposed to going to shareholders. But it was in good, as, as strong a financial shape as it had ever been. And what was the reason for selling? And I began asking around uh, as at this point, I had joined the watchdog as a reporter and was told, uh, basically, it's none of your business and we're not going to tell you why. And uh, I said, well, who else, you know, bid on mission? And they said, we can't tell you that. And uh, I went to the attorney general and I said, uh, what did your investigation, uh, your due diligence into the sale reveal? And he says, I can't tell you that. That's confidential. And uh, for an investigative reporter, that's sort of like uh, a loud klaxon call, you know, like, whoa, you know, what's going on? And it turns out that uh, the people who orchestrated this sale forced everyone involved in the deal to sign non-disclosure agreements. Uh, and when I approached them to find out when those agreements expired, I was told never that these are in perpetuity. No one is allowed to talk about how this deal went down. You know, the terms of the deal, what sort of uh, due diligence was done on the part of the Mission Hospital's investment banker. Wait a second, they don't have an investment banker, you know, who went around and solicited bids. How did this deal come around with HCA? And uh, the more I dug into it, uh, the more I realized that there are things about that sale, which became official in February of 2019, that the people who arranged the sale don't want you to know, ever. So that's been a continuing project of mine is to get to the bottom of how this deal came about. Uh, I don't, since then, uh, as expected, you know, uh, HCA immediately raised prices at the at Mission Hospital by 10%. Uh, Mission Hospital is now the ranks number two out of all of 180 hospitals that HCA owns in terms of net patient revenue. So they're, they're raking in money. And of course, all of that money leaves the community rather than being reinvested here. Um, we continue to try to get those answers. Uh, I pressed the attorney general a number of times for documents that under uh, you know, FOIA is a particular Freedom of Information Act just for federal documents. Uh, under North Carolina law, it's public records. And uh, the attorney general uh, tells us that those public records are not available to us because they're confidential. And uh, so we're uh, we're going to be making a stronger argument to the attorney general to uh, release those records to us. Uh, so that's where we are in the investigation. In the meantime, hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of complaints about quality of care at Mission Hospital uh, have been coming into the attorney general's office. Uh, you go on to Facebook and there's a, a group that was formed for people to complain about the care they receive at Mission Hospital since HCA took over. Uh, and they 
in a town of 100,000 people, there are more than 10,000 members of this group. Uh, and there's a lot, and there's, there's a lawsuit that's been filed on the basis of alleged there is, antitrust violations. So, and, and literally more than, you know, 150 doctors have left uh, uh, the hospital, hundreds of nurses have departed. Uh, the hospital is, um, you know, well, anyway, I could go on. Well, um, it's a, it's an important story and it's important because of the, not only the impact it's of the HCA sale, um, and the way that got done, but what it portends for the, the future. But let me just offer, if I might, a little bit of my perspective. You know, I was uh, for a large part of my career, a healthcare lawyer myself, and I worked for two nonprofit hospital systems. Um, the antitrust uh, complaint that I read suggests what I already knew, which is Mission was um, a monopoly before HCA came into play. And Mission monopolized not only hospital care, but they monopolized the physicians themselves having acquired a large number of practices. So whether it's for-profit or non-profit, monopolies tend to not be good for the patients or the employees, because monopoly means you have the ability to control prices, you have the ability to control wages, people don't like mission, there's a few other hospitals in the immediate vicinity, uh, some of which offer some much of the same services, but not, but in many cases, not a lot. So Mission uh, maybe had a sterling reputation. Um, we can talk about one of the news items about Leapfrog in a second, but it wasn't an unblemished um, reputation. And healthcare is healthcare, and it's not everything that's wrong with healthcare is not in the hands of the hospitals. It's all of us. It's the government. It's where money comes from, it's insurance companies and so on and so forth. But I am struck by what you're suggesting is how many people have sort of, you know, washed their hands or opted out. I know, uh, just just jump, take Josh Stein. You, there was an article I think about Josh Stein in the watchdog, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong, in which he has weighed in on a proposed merger in New Jersey. And one of his comments was that he couldn't do more from a due diligence or a regulatory standpoint because uh, North Carolina law didn't give him that degree of authority. Well, I'm not necessarily disputing that, but I'm not buying it either. Because as you say, uh, maybe he could only exercise you know, so much control over the process but he evidently knew that, as you said, um, Mission had not been looking for, you know, or shopping itself to multiple buyers. So there was not much competition. A lot of the former Mission people ended up at HCA after the fact. And, um, and, and the people signing non-disclosure agreements, that in and of itself is not uncommon in any kind of acquisition. But a non-disclosure agreement, as you indicate, that goes on forever, that's probably not a good idea. So could Josh Stein himself have done more? I, I, I suspect so, uh, frankly. Would it have changed the outcome? I suspect probably not. 
Um, if I can double back just on something, Mark, I appreciate your, your expertise in this area, but uh, North Carolina law uh, has some quirks in it. And uh, one of them right. is called a certificate of public authority. Yes. Or a, a COPA. And so when Mission Hospital uh, merged with another local hospital to create this monopoly that they had as a nonprofit, uh, they were allowed to have a, a monopoly as long as it was regulated by the state. So the, the state of North Carolina set caps on their profit margins and on the number of doctors that they could poach from, from other facilities and others. So it was a regulated monopoly. Uh, but when the new management of Mission Hospital came in, uh, just before the merger with HCA, they had the state legislature rescind that certificate of public authority, which essentially meant that the state no longer regulated Mission's monopoly. So the gloves were off, Mission was allowed to charge whatever they wanted. Uh, and they were also an, a very attractive target for a company like HCA, which then could come in and buy a monopoly uh, in North Carolina uh, without any limits on how much money they could make or how they would do their, you know, their hiring and staffing and that sort of stuff. So that's a, a difference in, in terms of how the monopoly was before admission was in what we now refer to as its golden age and, and what it is now with HCA. The attorney, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Uh, the attorney general uh, did not stand in the way of this merger after his investigation of it. Uh, we know from the public records that I was able to obtain from his office in the early days that there was only one other bidder for Mission Hospital. Uh, typically on a, on a $1.5 billion merger of any business, uh, you want to make sure that there is a you know, competitive bidding process, uh, which was not the case with Mission. They, we found out that uh, the Mission people actually approached HCA months before the board was even authorized to begin uh, discussing possible mergers or acquisitions. So the, the deal was already in the works with HCA and they had an offer from HCA before they began the process of shopping mission around. They limited the number of people that, that uh, they made uh, proposals to uh, asking if they would like to bid for mission. And only one other company was allowed to make a, a bid to the board. Uh, they were rejected within minutes and, and the board voted to go with HCA. The attorney general's responsibility to review that uh, revealed significant conflicts between the management of Mission and uh, HCA uh, in this deal. Uh, the Attorney General presented that to the Mission Board, who then voted uh, basically saying it doesn't matter to us, we're going to do the deal. And according to the Attorney General, uh, that fulfilled his obligation. He let them know that, you know, he had concerns about the deal. They said they were going to do it anyway. And he said, that's it. That's all the law, the law allows me to do. And so I'm done. 
And that's the way it was. I, I just talked to him a couple months ago and he said if he had to do it over again uh, under the same circumstances, he would do the same thing. Right, and I appreciate that. And um, my issue obviously is not with your reporting or your sense of it. My issue is I'm not buying all that because, <laughs> because I'm not, because I've worked in the industry, I understand it. And here's the point, as you mentioned, um, you know, people are always grousing about healthcare. It doesn't matter who's the pro provider. Nobody gets a shining star these days with all the problems there are. But if there are legitimate, significant problems in quality of care and, you know, people leaving in droves because, you know, there are problems in the way the hospital is being run, those are issues that still have legitimacy and could be the subject of uh, a private lawsuit. It could be the subject of an attorney general investigation. So, but, you know, there are a lot of people that were sort of turned a blind eye, whether there were non-disclosures or uh, agreements or not. Uh, people were thirsting, hungering after the money that they thought was going to be available that was put into the Dogwood Trust. And they were hungering for the idea that a nonprofit would be converted to a for-profit. So there'd be millions and millions of dollars available in, in, in tax revenue. And I think that without the information about what underlied the uh, purchase and how it was done and so, so on and so forth, I think you know th th those things possibly could have been more exposed. But you know, uh, Asheville Watchdog wasn't on that one. Um, the, this, a lot of this was covered by Citizen Times and others. But it, but it happened, and now there's 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 still untold stories. I mean, the past is prologue. The deal's done. It's not going to be unwound. But what we need in terms of further investigative journalism about healthcare in Asheville is still a story. And so you guys are going to continue to cover that story, which is great. So. We do have a story coming out in the near future on the doctors and nurses who are leaving HCA. And uh, so we've, we've already run a number of stories on patients who are telling horror stories about what's happening. But I think uh, it's, it's telling that uh, so many doctors are leaving the system now. Right. And, you know, people that have some options um, and maybe some of that journalism that you guys are doing, the quality journalism you're doing, will help um, make a difference. I certainly hope so. But there's tons of other stories that you guys are covering, that you've covered, um, dealing with, you know, politics and dealing with the state of uh, democracy and and you mentioned earlier about how sometimes it's difficult to get information from government authorities. Um, what's, what is your sense of now that you've been here two years, which is not long, what do you think um, is sort of in the cards for, for, for Asheville citizens to become not only more knowledgeable from what you guys report, but possibly more activist in trying to shape government to do things that are more in the public interest and, and not be swayed simply by what the politicians say that ought to be done? That's a tough question. I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping you can, can talk about that. 
Well, you know, you had mentioned earlier uh, about changing habits of news consumption. And I think, you know, what, what we're seeing is more and more people are getting their information from social media uh, as the legacy uh, media, you know, the readership of newspapers, listeners to public radio, uh, people who read print, uh, all of those are declining. And uh, so it's critically important that we figure out a way to deliver news, reliable, trustworthy news to people on platforms that, that reach them, matter to them. And uh, we don't have the answers yet. Uh, that's gonna be one of the great experiments of, of you know, the next few years is, is how do we reach these people? I think once they, they find out about you know, what's happening in town, they'll, uh, God, you know, if they aren't too disillusioned with the process already, then uh, maybe we can get them to be active, take a stronger role. Well, they've got to believe in something. So I think um, believing in, in good sound journalism, uh, particularly of the kind and quality that uh, Asheville Watchdog engages in will be helpful. I, I wanted to pick up on something else that you'd said earlier about one of your principal costs being um, liability insurance, uh, liability insurance presumably for covering the costs of litigating and potentially any settlements for defamation, slander, you know, whatever. And, you know, when I went to law school, we used to think that newspapers and TV were pretty much immune from lawsuits because of a case called New York Times v. Sullivan and some cases after that, which is in order for an, an, a newspaper or any journalistic outlet to be um, found guilty of, of, of defamation or slander or anything of that sort, you had not only proved that, the, that what was published was untrue, but that um, the newspaper knew it was untrue and proceeded anyhow, and that there was actual damage. But what we've now seen is an erosion of that principle. And you know, Trump and post-Trump, we actually see um, uh, journalists who are being physically threatened uh, and getting uh, e bad e emails, social postings on social media, uh, and, 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 and it's becoming very personal. Um, do you worry about that a lot? Sure. Uh, there's, there's no question that in the last uh, five years, we've seen a, an increase in hostility to the media, and it's been directed from very public figures. Uh, by the way, I, I hasten to add that the watchdog is nonpartisan, uh, and I tell people, uh, you know, just because a, a politician does something stupid and we write about it doesn't mean we support their opponent uh, you know we're we've gone after democrats as, as well as republicans uh, but when you look at the current climate you have uh, uh, you know justice thomas of the supreme court has said new york times v sullivan you know needs to be overturned uh, you have a uh, climate here in North Carolina where they don't have a, an anti-slap law, which basically, uh, you know, the great thing about America is anybody can sue anybody, but 
the cost of defending a frivolous lawsuit would bankrupt uh, the Asheville watchdog. Uh, so we need insurance to, to help protect us against uh, lawsuits, whether they're, they're based on defamation or not. Uh, uh, we write about lawyers who are doing questionable things and, and uh, lawyers are no strangers to filing lawsuits. So, you know, that, that is a concern of ours. Physical violence is, uh, you know, Unfortunately, in, in a climate like this, where uh, violence is increasingly tolerated, uh, and media sentiment uh, is negative, uh, it's, it's a concern. It's, and a lot of journalists have been harmed uh, in the last few years. And we can just hope. And I assume it's a concern in a number of ways. First of all, you have people who may decline to be journalists because they don't need the extra trauma and 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 fear uh, that they can't that, that that their life could be or their family's lives could be jeopardized. It and also no offsetting promise of riches at the end of that either. <laughs> right, and you can attest to that. Okay, and then and then and then beyond that, obviously, if somebody is writing a story which has controversy, and what story that you write doesn't have some controversy. <laughs> And the thought has to cross your mind. Somebody may mistakenly think that I'm not just reporting something, that I'm injecting my own bias in it. But one of the advantages that you have at Asheville Watchdog, unlike these things that get posted on Facebook and being posted on Facebook doesn't grant immunity, is you're, you've got editors and you have fact checking and you hold people that write these stories accountable so that at the very least, it would be difficult for somebody to say, I hated that story and you lied. <laughs> and you just did that to injure me. Uh, on our latest series, we were fortunate in the watchdog as, as backing from some of the top First Amendment lawyers in the country. Uh, you know, the, I haven't talked about the watchdog staff, but it's a, it's a small staff of, out of the eight people here, uh, three are Pulitzer Prize winners, another three are Pulitzer finalists. Uh, we have the editor of, you know, uh, editors who have been at the very top level of the game. So we know our way around. Uh, we have the support of Duke University Law School's First Amendment Clinic and others. So we, we have a lot of strong partners who in addition to our background and expertise in this area, we, we have a lot of legal support. So uh, we don't publish anything unless we're, we're confident that, yeah. Well, I wanna thank Peter Lewis uh, for being on the show today. And I want to thank you for the job that Asheville Watchdog is doing. And I hope to have you and some of your other journalists on my show in the future. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Mark. Take care.